Hey everyone. This week, we'd like to take a minute to thank Dan S. from Oregon for making his kind contribution. He said, your work is vital, and I think it's important to vote with my dollars. Thank you, Dan. We're really glad you enjoy the podcast, and we love your activism. Hi, I'm Wendy Dean, and this is Moral Matters. Dr. Jeremy A. Green is William H. Welch Professor and Director of the Department of the History of Medicine and Director of the Center of Medical Humanities and Social Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He's a practicing internist at the East Baltimore Medical Center, a community health center affiliated with Johns Hopkins University. He's also the author of The Doctor Who Wasn't There, Technology, History, and the Limits of Telehealth, which we talked with him about during this episode. Unfortunately, Simon wasn't able to join us for this episode, and this was such a great conversation that it went on for a bit. So we're just going to get right to it. Jeremy Green, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. I've read your book and have been looking forward to this conversation for weeks. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here today, Wendy, and to have a chance to discuss the book with you and your audience. Thanks. So... You are the director of the Department of the History of Medicine, and you have a a bunch of other titles, too, that we've introduced the listeners to. But I'm really curious, what led you in the direction of the history of medicine? So there's a really long answer to that question, uh, which is that I was going to be a primatologist. Um, I, in, in college, you know, I, I got to college and I, I loved the biological sciences and I was also just fascinated by the humanities and social sciences. And, and so many college students face this dilemma, right, of like be, needing to be pegged in one direction, right? Are you going, do you have this future in the sciences and medicine, engineering, et cetera? Do you have a future in, you know, humanities and the social world? And um, I saw, in, you know, this was the 90s, and there was a lot of um, interest in this field of, uh, of evolutionary psychology, of thinking that you could learn a lot of the inherent aspects and the learned and the aspects and the diversity of human experiences by studying monkeys and chimpanzees and gorillas. And this was really compelling to me at the time that here's this combination of an interest in biology and an interest in the complexity of the social world. And it was, you know, I was very fortunate. I I managed to have an excellent mentor and I got uh, scholarship funding from the Ford Foundation to spend a summer in the rainforests of western Uganda following chimpanzees and colubine monk- monkeys through the, um, through, the, through the rainforest and just realized while I was there that I was just not going to be able to answer the questions I had about the complexities of human experience through, through monkeys. Huh. Um, and, you know, I think other people may be able to, but what became much more compelling at that moment, this is the nine, mid-90s, was realizing that the, the the people who staffed the research station we lived in, who lived in surrounding villages, um, you know, many of whom actually came to the research site for um, asking for health care, and, and when they went to their own you know local hospitals, district hospitals, would all be diagnosed with malaria. Not every single one, but malaria was just a kind of a knee-jerk diagnosis almost. And um, you know, this was the mid '90s. The the HIV/AIDS epidemic was ravaging. Um, all areas of Uganda, especially the area we were in, um, and you know, yeah. still closely associated with um, you know risk groups and risk categories, right? Especially you know homosexuality as this lingering um, you know moral and seem at the time seen as behavioral valence around HIV/AIDS, and homosexuality at the time was and still is illegal in Uganda, right? And so the kind of non-conversation around the obviousness of HIV AIDS that was happening in this space with people that I knew and worked with and their families um, drew my attention so much away from these monkeys that I was supposed to be studying towards these much more compelling and urgent questions about the social complexities of illness and healing and how any notion of disease was always suspended in this complicated social, political, moral, and technical universe that I was seeing right there. And so, so I wasn't a pre-med as an undergraduate, 
right? But I came back to my last <laughs> semester of, of school and realized, oh, I had been an anthropology major and a biology major, and I'd fulfilled every single requirement to go to medical school except this one semester of organic chemistry. And so I became a pre-med in my last, very last semester <laughs> of college. And that's, it was because... That's impressive. <laughs> but it was, I felt very fortunate. And I could talk more about that later because I think being a pre-med is a morbid condition. And I wish we had a different <laughs> way like, of thinking about yeah. how to train people to For these sure. careers in healthcare rather than these um, really soul-deadening approaches, which date back, yeah. but they really are all a residue of the 1910 Flexner report, right? That, like, why yeah. are these the things that we think select for excellent healers, right? And so, but at any rate, that's a different conversation, but it's it's related. But, you know, I, I, I found myself, um, you know, what drew me to medicine was that healthcare was, of course, always this complex intersection of social and biological forces. You need to be able to see them both at the same time. And that pulled me into medicine. And in that semester, I was fortunate to take a history course as well. Now, I should also add, I saved my history requirement as an undergrad for my absolute last semester of college because I, I hated <laughs> history. Um, and, you know, like, and, and, you know, I, yeah. I'm not the only historian who came to this love of history later on. But, yeah. You know, and I don't want to blame my high school AP history teacher. He's a really wonderful guy. But there, but there was a whole way the curriculum was built. It was out of his control, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it wasn't until taking that course, and it was a history of medicine course, I realized, wow, like, history is this powerful tool, a set of analytics to, yeah. to actually take apart the things we take for granted about our everyday lives and show all of the politics and cultural formations in there. And that what I was seeing in um, this, this complexity of trying to understand HIV AIDS in Uganda in the mid-90s um, could be looked at in so many different points in time in so many different places. Um, and then somehow, you know, some unspecified number of decades later, I, I am both a physician and a historian, and I get to run this Institute of the History of Medicine here at Johns Hopkins. And I don't know how it all worked out, but it's um, I feel very lucky. <laughs> right. So there's a, um, if we knew what we were getting into, we probably wouldn't believe it. <laughs> no. At least that's certainly the case for me. Somehow you got from HIV AIDS to this book that I spent the weekend with, which was The Doctor Who Wasn't There, Technology, History, and the Limits of Telehealth. And it was, as you say, this amazing blend of what the history of our relationship as physicians with technology has been, as well as putting it in the context of what's happening today. And I found it really compelling. There was this one passage that you had, which was early on in the book, and you said, when physicians resist a new information technology, they are restating fundamental moral concerns of that medical profession and resisting the perceived loss of their own control over the nature of medical work. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I think that's a really rich phrase. I'm glad you're picking up on this, and it's 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 such a complex space, right? To understand resistance to technologies, right? We tend to focus right. on adoption, right? And a lot of the way we talk about technology and healthcare, in particular, is of course that innovation has driven and will drive all of the important transformations, especially in American healthcare, where we see a sort of a technolog technological forwardness as crucial to how we justify the extraordinary expense and really um, like underwhelming outcomes of our healthcare system, right. you know, especially related to other countries. Um, so we focus on innovation and early adopters and to look at resistance, right? is one of these non-obvious things. Although I'm not the only person mm -hmm. to do it. Uh, Nathan en Nathan Ensminger, who is a historian of technology at the University of Indiana Bloomington, has a really wonderful piece about why doctors resist technologies um, as well. And so, in a way, I'm picking up on some of those threads here and trying to understand, um, you know, how is it that technologies that are seen to be imminent and useful, right? The computer, for example, which had spread through a variety of other elements of American public life and work life well before it found its way into hospitals and clinics. 
Um, and many people at the time, in the late 50s and early 60s, are wondering out loud, why aren't doctors using computers? It's this obvious tool to help spread medical information, to assist with diagnosis, to make sure that communication can happen well between sites. Like, why, why do we insist in these manila paper charts, which can so easily right. be lost going from here to there? Um, and, and yet... You know, there's a handful of doctors that saw the computer as an incredible innovation that would do all of these things and actually improve the quality of the doctor-patient relationship. But then there's this divided sense of resistance. And on the one hand, there's the public face of that resistance, which is it's not going to be good for patients. We're going to dehumanize the clinical experience through X or Y technology. And what the patient needs is access to a what only a doctor can provide. This is, this is to say, a human caring experience and a professional who will be an advocate for their health. Um, but, you know, lurking behind that is, of course, the professional self-interest, that each new form of electronic communication technology that was introduced into healthcare offered a different way to surveil what happened inside of the clinic to take a closer look at um, at the encounters that most doctors previously had been able to have behind closed doors, or to actually come up with a set of guidelines and then see whether physicians' prescribing practices, diagnosis practices, actually correspond to those guidelines. So, you know, there's it, this this powerful piece, which is to say, as a profession, as as what in many ways an archetypal profession that has had and a really unusual degree of professional self-control over the past few, you know, 150 years or so, um, you know, the American prof medical profession had a lot to lose um, politically by allowing these technologies in. So one of the things that becomes hard to, te te to tease apart is in this passage that you've pulled out here, Wendy, is when is the doctor truly speaking in the self-interest of the patients they claim to advocate for and when are they speaking of their own self-interest when they resist these, um, uh, these new technologies? Yeah, and what I think is interesting, as you read through your book, what sounds like pure self-interest in, in sort of keeping their knowledge or their, or their work life sacrosanct, right? Only, only physicians can provide these things. In fact... Perhaps some of that was self-preservation, right? Because as you so clearly outline as you go through the book, that going from the telephone to the radio to telehealth to the EMR, there is an erosion of the ability to sustain your own well-being as we progress. And so maybe, maybe it was a bit of it was not necessarily that we were trying to keep a corner on our profession, but we were also trying to preserve something of our lives as integral with this profession. It's a really good point, Wendy, and it's, it's part of the motivation behind this book in particular is realizing that, you know, by the end of the first decade of the 21st century, um, physicians are coming to overwhelmingly cite electronic medical records, right? The shifting electronic yeah. media yeah. of medical practice as an overwhelming reason for retiring early or cause of physician burnout, a sense of a loss of identification with the ideals that had previously, you know, kept them committed to medical practice. Um, so it is right to open this up as a, as a third space, right? It's neither purely speaking for a patient nor purely right. speaking for a professional or a, you know self-interest but actually trying to figure a way of of maintaining a space in which um, it, you know the labor conditions of healthcare changing so dramatically are actually closing down what bring many people into healthcare. And this problem of burnout is substantial. Now, I think it's a little too easy to just blame the electronic medical record, right. or rather the <laughs> yeah, digital media at all, because digital media <laughs> right. can take a lot of forms, right? Right. But I think you're right in pointing this out. And, you know, I, I was just in my clinic this morning. I just, you know, um, just 
kind of got out of there. And, and there's a as soon as I log into my computer in my clinic in a community health center in East Baltimore, there's this dashboard that lights up, right? Mm-hmm. Green and yellow and red, yep. depending on you know, and it'll let me know am I spending too much time with a patient, which is a fascinating, you know problem to highlight, right? Right. Um, Or, you know, what is my efficiency as a provider? Now, it's not to say that those pressures weren't there even in the 19th century, right? But there's a way in which the so many providers see this when they think of the EMR, right? And as a result, associate the EHR with the managerial impulses that are eroding, right, as sort of a fundamental political economy problem. And there is something, I want to point out here that a lot of physicians changing engagement with EHRs over the past few decades have also come at the hand with a majority of physicians now engaging with medical practice through larger systems compared to in the mid-20th century when the average American physician was a self-employed practitioner. So these things happen together, and so in a a way one might conflate the other. Um, But, yeah. Or, I mean, and... The other reality is that the EMR may not actually be serving the physician's needs as much as that big organization's needs, or at least equally. Yeah, they write about this explicitly in the 50s and 60s, right? Understanding that Correct. there are many different ways to design computer systems, and the ones that actually tend to you know, get tractions and toeholds, especially, ironically, as doctors reject computers, is that the, the yeah. business office of the hospitals embrace them, and then the computer right. systems come to reflect their priorities. Now, there's, right. some, there's an additional piece to, I mean, obviously, there's a problem of having a historian come onto your show because we could just talk forever about the books that we write. <laughs> but there's an additional piece to, to this question you're asking, right, about, um, you know, do these electronic technologies, um, you know, produce more work for doctors um, and with less control over the conditions of their own labor? And, uh, you know, you may know uh, there's a famous um, uh, text in the history of technology by Ruth Schwartz Cohen called um, uh, More Work for Mother, in which she takes apart the history of what are called labor-saving devices, right, or the 19th and 20th century, and shows that this iteration of devices that are supposed to reduce the amount of time spent in domestic work, again, heavily gendered domestic labor, um, uh, do no such thing and instead just actually transform the standard of cleanliness for the American home and result in more time and more obsession with with uh, with with gendered labor. And so, you know, my, my colleague Hannah Zeven, who has a lovely book on the history of teletherapy that you might be interested in as well, had suggested when I was writing this volume that I should just call the whole book More Work for Doctor because you do see these series of technologies that are presented to physicians as labor-saving devices, whether it's the telephone or the physician's pager or the electronic health record, all are presented as being labor-saving devices, right, that will actually increase doctors' leisure time. Like the initial ads for pagers to physician show physicians on golf courses or in baseball games or weddings, and look how you can do all these things. You can be on call, but you can be elsewhere. But then don't attend to the flip side of that, which is that you're never, you know, you're never unreachable, right? And the same thing with right. the EHR. So we have this problem. I mean, yeah. like, I, you know, I can finish my notes at home, um, but then I'm at home typing notes on my computer, and that's what my kids see of me. Right. And so I, I was talking to a lot of physicians for a book that I wrote, and inevitably, and I did not, I didn't specifically ask this question, but inevitably, they all talked about how difficult it was to be on call, right? To be tied to that pager and to know that you are at risk no matter what. And it was, they all said, I was a miserable person, right? I Like yeah. being on call was really hard for me as a person. I couldn't be present for my family. And what they say now is my EMR separates me from my patients during the day and my family at night, and I, I have not, no matter how efficient I am, I don't know how to reconcile that. But I, I want to go back for a minute to the telephone, because I think it's one of those things that we all take for granted. Nobody I hear was certainly practicing medicine before there was a telephone. And I'm not even sure how many retired physicians were practicing before there was a telephone at this point. But you describe in this book that 
physicians had worries about the telephone. As I was reading it, I I was kind of chuckling to myself that it mirrored a lot of the worries that we have now. And you've already mentioned that benefit, which is more freedom. We could maybe be out on the golf course or we could be at home or whatever. But, But then there were also drawbacks. And could you talk a little bit about what those were? Oh, um, for sure, and, and I think you're you're right about the the mirroring of uh, of present day concerns. If anything, the book wound up being somewhat of a cyclical history, right? Which is to say, if one looks at the hopes and fears associated with the telephone for 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 medicine in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, or the hopes and fears associated with wireless technologies like radio, or the hopes and fears with network television, especially with cable television, or the hopes and fears of the network digital computer, that they they're they're never exactly the same, but the patterns of rise and fall, hypes and hopes, but also fears that actually get paired, and then each of them, the telephone especially, visibly, do fundamentally transform medicine but oftentimes in a way that is not quite what either the hopes were promised or what the worst fears were, right? So I think if, if people ask history to have a lesson for the future in a way that's one of the most useful lessons from this study is that the future of um, AI in medicine, right? The future of telehealth, the future of electronic health records is neither going to be our worst fear for it nor our greatest hope for it. And we'll probably have a profound infrastructural shift in a way that we don't even see because it's part of what we take for granted in everyday life. And I think the telephone's a great example of this, right? Like we don't think about the telephone as a medical technology, but you know, medical journals did in the 1880s. They were super excited about telephones. It was seen as a cutting edge piece of laboratory equipment, a new kind of diagnostic tool. In fact, what we now call ultrasound may have had its first demonstrations by using 19th century telephones to try and locate stones inside of the the, the abdomens of patients. Um, It was, you know, the telephone was the basis for what became the hearing aid. Now we think of these things, ultrasound and the hearing aid as medical technologies, right? But then the telephone itself, um, you know, had its most powerful impact as this kind of gray infrastructure of accessibility and expected accessibility that just came to be part of life. And I do want to point out, it's not just terrible, as right? It, it's useful that, that people were able to call their physicians, right? Um, you know, in, in, the, in the mid-20th century, for sure. It still is, right? In many ways, the telephone is now an under-recognized medical technology that can really help with chronic care and connectedness, right? Um, there are many times, as, yeah, as, as all of us have learned during the pandemic, right, there's many times in which we do like a Zoom link, audio-visual connection, when actually a phone call would be just fine, right? Right. Um, and so, but, you know, if one looks at, at the telephone, you know, some of the initial, um, you know, hopes for the telephone was that it would render healthcare accessible to everybody wherever you were in this country. And this was also a fear, right? Which is to say, you know, if you are a, um, you know, if, if you're a cardiologist um, in, in, in Indiana, right? But your patient can then access the long lines and then hook up a special telephone stethoscope to their, you know, chest mm-hmm. and actually be evaluated by a cardiologist, you know, out of Harvard Medical School or whatever. Like, there's a, a risk of concentration, right, or of loss. And and late 19th century medical journals had articles that were worrying about the rise of a new specialty of telephone medicine in which doctors just won't go out to see their patients anymore. They'll just sit back on their clinics and listen. <laughs> and of course, this is both a hope and a fear, right? Right. And it didn't right. happen that way for a lot of reasons. Um, but what, what did happen was this sense that um, doctors had to be accessible. And then you see, like, I, by the early decades of the 20th century, um, doctors actually publishing what we could identify now as like fundamentally Marxist critiques of the ways in which the telephone has alienated the physician from control over their own time or labor. Um, and, uh, you know, it's kind of fascinating seeing them. There's there's 
poems, um, is a poem published in the California State Medical Journal called Appreciation of the Telephone, which is really just invective. And it, it says repeatedly, tinkle, tinkle, little bell, how I wish you safe in hell. Um, that they're really that this, the telephone has just invaded doctors' lives, and no one has privacy anymore. Ellen Fireball writes this really hysterical novel around the same time. It's a memoir called "The Story of a um, What is it called? The, st- the Story of a Doctor's Telephone." Um, as told by his wife. I'm getting the title wrong right now. But um, but she writes about the telephone as this tyrant that has just invaded the, right. their house. You know, she, right. in a very gen- typical gendered labor situation of a doctor's wife in the early 20th century, was also effectively receptionist bookkeeper for the practice. Um, and she's a very funny writer. And you see this, she describes herself as an octopus and just needing to be accountable all the time. So, so I, I, I put all these pieces together because, you know, there's this early sense of a telephone as a new technology. And then there's this space right around when Firebot is writing, when the telephone is seen as an essential aspect of modern medicine. And this is such an interesting space to look at, right? Like, what's the moment in which a new media, right, becomes key to being modern. And it's very, very visible in medical literatures. But it's visible now in terms of no- norms of practice, right? So how many telephones do you need to have? Or rather, what happens if you're not there to answer your telephone? And so right. the idea of a physician's answering service. And, and then there's a new um, medico-legal discourse, right? As you can become culpable for neglect of your telephone. Right. And so it started to... What I see is that with every step in the usefulness of technology, there was a new level of expectation for physicians to give up something of their control over their work or the, the boundaries of their work is maybe what's a better way to put it. Yeah, I think boundaries is, is, a, is, a, is a very useful term here. And I think of the telephone as a, as a boundary um, device, a boundary technology, because other people can be involved in governing telephones, right? Um, lawyers and judges, right, on the one hand, but also, um, you know, health systems, um, you know, uh, the, one can, um, the, the idea that a physician should be um, accessible by telephone um, is, you know, percolates through in the early 20th century, and it's really in 1960 that you see the first case of medical malpractice of culpable neglect of telephone that is issued after right. after a patient is injured because a, a, a physician does not make themselves accessible to return a telephone call within a certain amount of time. Um, but yeah. you could also say this builds off of a um, what was already a pre-existing moral quality within the medical profession, right, which is this sense of um, accessibility, accountability to one's patients. Um, and that this is part of the compact of professionalism, right? And part of that fiduciary role. Um, but the technology doesn't invent that sense that a physician should be accountable for. Um, you know, like if you look at uh, Romeo and Juliet, right? There's a page where, uh, you know, Mercutio lies bleeding and Romeo says, you know, go page, fetch a surgeon, right? So that this idea that, that Physicians should be accessible even in urgent spaces, right? It was, was clearly pre, pre-existing. But the technology transforms the temporality of it and the accessibility of it, that reach, right? right? And the nature of privacy or when are, when are the moments in which one can be a private individual who is not accountable to other people. Right. And it also, I think we're negotiating those same boundaries with digital technologies now, with the inbox, with the EMR, with my chart, with uh, lab results now? Like, where are the boundaries where we can expect a physician to have a reasonable amount of time to contact a a patient? Um, Or what is reasonable for a physician to respond to? Because right now, it's sort of all open. There are some places that are starting to negotiate that. But it's almost where the telephone was back in the early 20th century, where it's it's a free for all. It's a everything is fair. It, it is, and and I I think that um, it's compounded by the the concomitant pandemic as well, right? And this correct explosion of the normalization of televisits 
Um, and the attempt to roll some of that back now that mm -hmm. the, you know, what is called the emergency of the pandemic has been declared over, right? Even though there right. is, of course, still COVID-19 spreading you know, substantially through our populace. So what happens when all of this access is rolled out very, very quickly, right? And we could talk about the history of the open chart movement, right, which actually can be mm -hmm. traced back in the history of computing to Warner Slack's work in the 1960s in Wisconsin. Um, but, you know, it's fundamentally a, a part of a longer legal debate over who really owns the medical chart, right, which right. has been rolling for a while. Um, but also beyond just who owns the chart, that who's responsible for the ability to um, help to translate some really frightening information that can occur when one gets results of a test without contextualization, right? So the whole space right. of open charts, and, and again, a sympathetic understanding of why it is that um, patients and family members, when they now have access to immediate access to test results, which it immediately induce existential quandaries, also need forms of access to um, context, communication, contextualization, and then, you know, next steps, right? But this leads to these open inboxes all of the time. Now, I don't know about you, Wendy, but I, I, I can barely even handle my email, right? And in fact, yeah. my email has been right. increasing. They're the kind of the doubling right. rate of my inbox just in my email right. is something that's hard to handle, let alone this kind of new form of accountability right. to the EHR direct messaging system, right? Correct. And this is what remi it reminds me of the telephone. Because, you know, when I was a kid, you could call the doctor's office and you could t actually talk to the doctor. And then that got to be overburdensome. Yeah. I remember a pediatrician I shadowed used to have an hour when you could call in the morning. And then even that has stopped. And, you know, when my husband got sick, we couldn't ever talk to the physician, even though my husband is a physician himself. So, you know, there's this, this cons gradual constriction, and I think it frustrated patients. And so, understandably, they're saying, we need some contact. But again, it's, we're back to negotiating. Yeah. Some of what we're talking about is specific to physicians, right, or healthcare professionals in general, right? And some of it is a generalizable problem of an acceleration of technological forms, right, and, 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 and accountability. And in a way, in that sense, the physician can be seen as almost like a canary in a process that ensnares all of us. Right. So, you know, for example, um, you may have come across phantom pager syndrome. <laughs> yeah, I think I've experienced it when I was younger. <laughs> Yeah, so me too. And phantom pager syndrome is described in the clinical literature, right? Um, and it's when you feel your, your the vibration of your pager going off when actually you can see your, your pager is actually on the desk in front of you or could not mm -hmm. possibly be attached to your body. And it's sort of a, you know, a form of a functional neuropathy of, of a sort, right? Um, but uh, and, and I would, I mean, I would add that there's pager PTSD because oh, yeah. at one point I heard somebody's pager go off in a coffee shop when I was on vacation. I literally ran out of the shop. Yeah, and, and I think that's a really important thing to get at, which is that it's one thing for us to say simply, well, you know, ontologically it's impossible to have such a thing as culpable neglect of telephone before a telephone is invented as a medical legal category. Yeah. Sure. But there's another set of thing we develop, which is this actually physical relationship and sort of an, an existential and cognitive and affective response that gets conditioned through these things. So I mention this because, you know, phantom pager syndrome happens to physicians for the most part when it's described. But I think mm -hmm. that, you know, if the listeners of your podcast include non-health professionals, right, I think just about all of us have now known this moment where we feel like our phone is buzzing yep. in our pocket and it's not because Correct. it's on the table in front of us. So in a way, or with emails accountability, so that part of the problem that we have of the technological acceleration of accountability is that what we see in the world of physicians here is not a kind of a, a late adopting problem, but a very early adopting because physicians are seen as a kind of professional that need to be ever accessible. And right. so then help get recruited. The physician is a key figure for the invention of the technology of the pager because of that fact, right? Right. But then help to develop right. a set of industry standards that become part of everyone's cell phone now in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to go back uh, just a little bit. In Chapter 5, you talked about several successful demonstrations in telemedicine. And these were 
a fair bit ago. They were in the 90s, the 80s, the 90s. You talked about rural Vermont, New Hampshire, Wisconsin, and then the Papago, Papago, or that's now the um, Tohono O'odham Reservation in Arizona. And what you talked about, you talked about this really eloquently and frustratingly, that despite their successes, they proved exactly what they set out to prove, and yet the projects eventually shut down. Right. And you said that demonstrations are not enough without political will, without this longer term attention to implementation, without the drive to follow through. We're left with a series of demonstrations of what might have been. And as I was reading that, I was anticipating the public health emergency being over around the coronavirus pandemic. And I was thinking, Okay, so now we're going to retighten the regulations around telemedicine. And will COVID be seen as just one more massive demonstration that wasn't enough? Yeah, that's such a profound question. And I think that um, I think the answer to that question really depends on us, of course. Um, and you know, I think COVID, since the beginning of the pandemic, has been a window of possibility into our willingness to see the structural bases of inequity in healthcare and the work for all of us to work to reduce them versus our desire to generally, um, you know, embrace, you know, technological solutionism and, um, and actually blame um, poor people, marginalized populations for their own poor health, right? So there's a fascinating moment early on in the pandemic when, when the disparities by race, by ethnicity in particular, by income, by geography, of morbidity and mortality became undeniably evident in a crucial national conversation. And even though there were a few initial attempts to try and blame this on genetics or actually biological forms of differentiation, right, like a sort of a biological racism, there's tiny glimmers of that. Um, the overwhelming message was look at this moment, we need to take the structural bases of health disparities seriously right. in this country. So this window opened, right? But then that window started to narrow almost immediately, right? And especially, ironically, when a technological solution did emerge, right? At the moment of the vaccine rollout, right? You see the beginnings of a conversation about, um, about mistrust and distrust and the, the low percentages of uh, vaccine um, uptake within minoritized communities being a different way in which a community could be blamed for its own poor health, right? right? So these moments right. open and then they shut again, right? So mm -hmm. it's, um, right. I, so how, do we keep, how do we keep them open? And I think it's true with communications technologies for sure, my goodness, I mean. Yeah, I mean, I think we talk about them and, yeah. and we, we keep insisting that we keep those windows open but we need to be louder about it. We need to be louder and we need to watch also for the, 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 the social processes that allow their erasure. Right. There's a lot that happens right. that allow us to forget things. And there's a moment last spring, you probably saw this, um, I believe it was the New York Times did a photo essay on the Black Lives Matter road murals that had faded and were nearly erased yeah. since the initial protests after the murder of George Floyd. Yeah. And so, what do we do in this space where a national conversation can be erased? Um, right. And, you know, and, you know, I think so much of my interest in this book and writing about mundane things like telephones and pagers is to suggest that it's actually in what we take for granted that actually a, a lot of the kinds of prior promises that are made are allowed to be forgotten because you don't think of a telephone as a medical technology right. anymore, right? You don't think of cable TV as this thing that's supposed to provide fundamental equity and democracy and access to healthcare. But, you know, hey, in the early 70s, that's what cable television was, was going to do. It was going to be an imminent disruptive technology to break down barriers, um, you know, especially within the inner city, but also in, in yeah. rural marginalized areas and actually promote equity. And it, it didn't, but we were allowed to forget that. Yeah. And I, I feel like um, that's, that's one of the other challenges with technology, you know, and the EMR is a perfect example of all of the promises that were made around the EMR. Yeah. You could have it wherever you wanted. Any clinician could talk to any other clinician and get the records. Um, you wouldn't have to fill out numerous forms repeatedly. 
you know, it could it could be used for public health. And I think in part the excitement around all of those new promises that we could make with this technology for research, for clinical care, for billing efficiency, for cost control, almost overburdened the technology from the beginning. And it made it impossible for it to fulfill the promises. But we forget what the promises were in the beginning. Yeah, that's a fascinating argument, Wendy. And it's a, it's a two-part argument, right? Like if we take like the first part of it, which is that these promises are essential to producing social policy that is favorable to, to the funding and uptake of a new technology, but is then forgotten such that those right. who then capitalize on the technology are able to pursue a different agenda and no one particularly calls them to task on this. Now, that's Correct. a fundamental problem that we see with the telephone, with cable television, with electronic health records, without a doubt. So there's a question of governance. How do we actually have a longer policy memory, right? especially when it comes to right. technology, and not merely trust technologies to just be these benign things that deliver what right. those who are so heavily involved in their uptake actually promise us they will. Right. But then there's another piece you're actually getting at, which is, you know, overburdening. And I remember thinking about this, um, oh, I remember watching uh, Barack Obama's uh, speech on election night in his first term in Chicago, it was a beautiful speech. And I remember listening to the things that the coalition that helped elect Obama had put on the platform as he was reminding us of them. In this moment. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, that's a lot. There's no <laughs> way this is all going right? to happen. People are going to be disappointed. Yeah. Um, and this looks like a remarkable new president. But, wow, he is being set up with an agenda that there's it's impossible for him actually to fully deliver on. So how yeah. do we not overburden promising, um, you know, socio-technological movements, right? And how do we have a more realistic expectation of what they can do so that we can follow through on it? That's a really interesting provocation. As I was doing a deep dive into the EMR, and having worked for 10 years in government, it was very believable that the promise of this technology, oh, we could have this thing that everybody had to put data into. Oh, well, this agency wanted this from it, and that agency wanted the other thing from it, and another agency wanted another thing from it, and it just kept piling on. And in fact, it may be the reason why we do 10,000 clicks in a day. Rather than harmonizing those requirements, they just piled on. Yeah, and I, I um I don't have the solution there, but I, I, I like the direction that you're taking this. Um, like, what is a mode of governance that help us get more usable solutions that are reflexively receptive to the needs of multiple users, right, right without being paralyzed right. by the multiple stakeholder problem? Yeah, and I think it's, uh, I mean, in my mind, it's, it's really that the end user needs to have a voice. It can't just be something that we impose on on healthcare workers or finance worker, you know, wh whoever we impose it on. I think they need to have a vote. Um, or at least they need to be able to provide feedback that is actionable and rapidly acted on. But, you know, I think it's a negotiation. I agree. And I find myself thinking back to, and, you know, you and I could probably trade stories about our own um, interactions with iterative computing platforms as practitioners over the years, right? So, but I do, I have a nostalgia, I guess, and I write critically about nostalgia as a historical <laughs> mode in this book. But, you know, I, I'm, I remember the um, computing system that I first learned clinical medicine on within the Brigham and Women's Hospital, for example, or the Massachusetts General Hospital when I was a medical student and a resident. And the reason I'm calling this out is that, you know, first of all, there are two different computer platforms at these different hospitals right. that are now actually one merged right. hospital, right? Um, but um, but <laughs> it's like the people made them and loved them. And the people who made them were also practitioners. And if I had a problem with something, I, I knew this person I could mm -hmm. talk to who had actually designed the system and who was constantly trying to improve yeah. it. So I do think there was this moment in medical computing and electronic health records where, you know, there's a let a thousand flowers bloom, right? There's all these different things. Now, they don't communicate with each other as effectively as you'd like to. So they're not delivering on that promise, the right. HR. But at the same time, they're locally accountable to users. And that is something where the scalar transformation 
after the passage of high tech, which has really given us effectively an oligopoly, if not a monopoly right. on electronic health resources, has caused the scalar problem that really accelerates that, that sort of tone deafness, or in a way, maybe minimally performative mm -hmm. responsiveness <laughs> to users, but in, not in a way that any end user like you or I really feel like we can have a, like a solid chance of actually changing problems. Yeah. So how do we get back? How do you devolve a industry that has actually oligopolized or monopolized? That's, one, that's mm -hmm. the iterative tough lesson of studying communications technologies right. in healthcare because telephone system man that is the case study in america monopoly right right you literally know, ehr is another is another yeah. space in there yeah so i want to talk about one last thing which you didn't specifically write about but i think it's one of the next logical steps in this progression it, it also got traction during the pandemic got sort of a lift which is hospital at home and i thought about it a lot while I was reading your book. And I wondered about some of the promises I hear. And with the history of promises, you know, big ideas, is this another place where we're about to overpromise and the people who are going to suffer from those overpromises may not be the people that we think? And one of the times when I really thought about this was when you were talking about the telephone and you were talking about Jeffrey L. Brown. He was a pediatrician. You said that in his view, the telephone required the parents to become both medical historian and physical examiner inside their own homes. So I wonder if we're going to take a new generation of family members, caregivers, and expect them to acquire a new set of skills in not only being a historian and a short-term examiner, but then to become a licensed, you know, to acquire the skills necessary to care for a patient long-term without actually thinking about what that means for our society, what that means for technology, et cetera. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a fascinating direction, Wendy. And I think you're very right to lean in on it this way. Um, I, I think there's two immediate ways that I, I, re I react to this. And one is um, this problem yeah. of um, seeing devices as increasing right. access and reducing labor because they, the labor is never reduced. It's just translated to somewhere else, right? And, and, and the sort of power is not actually granted just to the patient or family. It's Correct. oftentimes moved laterally to whoever is developing this particular system and who controls the way that it works, right? Um, so, so there's a lot of work that then needs to be done, oftentimes by the patient and the family. Much as when you and I were talking before about um, our email systems and remembering back as to how you used to just be able to phone a doctor's office and talk to the receptionist. Now, admittedly, that's a very gendered and, and classed labor system there, but it was a form of labor that we now retrospectively like, you know, respect in a different way now that all of us are functionally grappling with our emails right. in our inboxes and, you know, having to constantly be our right. own administrators. And that there's no person, that the labor function of a person that can help patients figure out how to access a doctor right. that day is sort of wishfully displaced onto a technology as if the technology will just do it in an equitable way. But really it means that the people that know how to actually crack the code of the algorithms, and that's really what Brown is writing about, right, um, are able to actually access care much more efficiently. And this comes to the second point, which is that we then think this will equitably provide access to all, but it'll just be another widening kind of digital divide, health literacy divide over the kind of yeah. scalar work it takes yeah. um, to be able to be a, seen and recognized as a kind of person who deserves care. Um, and so all these extra layers to receive care, whereas the hospital, for all of the dehumanizing it does and centralizing care and making patients leave their homes and wear these awkward johnnies and, you know, feel like the hospital is still a public institution in which people yeah. can come and expect to receive care regardless of their ability to navigate the health system, right? And so the home hospital movement, so much is bundled into there, which has such capacity to wreak tremendous widenings of inequity. Well, the other thing that really worries me 
is that this movement has the potential to shift liability as well. And the feeling of responsibility from the care provider, and by that I mean the institution, not the person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, from the institution to the family. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it is part of a longer trajectory of what many social scientists of medicine call responsibilization in the field of healthcare, right? Which is, you know, if we can blame poor health on the behaviors and choices of individual people, then we do not need to account for the overwhelming structural forces that we know substantially determine who gets sick, who gets better, and why. Um, so I, I think you're right to point at that problem um, and to ask, well, why are we so interested as a society of divesting responsibility as a form of risk that needs to be apportioned onto the sum of individual behaviors? Um, but then again, you know, we, we've had a long history of that in this country in terms of our approach to, you know, how we dole out such a thing as health insurance, right? In which we, it took a long time to actually get pre-existing commissions off the table and then they keep on floating back in such that people's ability to be meritorious of care, right, um, is dependent upon, you know, the degree of risk that they actually bring to an institution. Um, So I I think you're right to situate this movement um, as something that, unless it's explicitly actually um, you know, designed in a way that does not devolve risk to the household is just part of a broader chain in that direction. Right. Well, Jeremy, I am so grateful for this conversation. Thanks for, thanks for writing this book. Um, we'll link it in the show notes. And thank you so much for such a thoughtful conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. It's been a real pleasure, Wendy. And, you know, I, I don't mean that end on a sort of a, you know, Jeremiah kind of note of how, you know, this technologies that we're talking about are doomed to, to, to you know, merely lead to worse outcomes and, and widening divides. I, part of what fascinates me is how fundamentally agnostic technology is um, towards, you know, instrumentalization to widen or narrow disparities between peoples, right? Yeah. And, and so that's why I like coming back to the sense that it's in interrogating what's taken for granted and seeing how promises are or are not followed up on that we can actually help make sure that technologies which do have such great potential, right, to actually further democratize our access to healthcare in this country and also really to help ensure and restore the, the joy and the intense personal connections that help to drive meaningful health care can persist, right? Yeah. So that there's nothing necessarily dehumanizing about any of these technologies. Um, and, and the question is, how do we attend to the future and who controls the way technologies roll out in the future so that this technology can lead to even more human forms of interaction and the fundamental dignity of the people that we, um, we serve yeah. as, as physicians? And I always think... We built it this way, yeah. which means we can renovate it. Renovation. That's great. I, I, I like that metaphor. Um, yeah. And I will, I, I'm, I'm, I will leave you with, with that. But I, I really appreciate the chance to be on today and look forward to more conversations with you. Really enjoy the work that you're doing in this podcast. Thank you so much. As always, thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios. We are a grassroots organization and your contributions will keep these episodes coming. If any of the work we do is helpful to you, please give back if you can by making a donation at our website, fixmoralentry.org. And if you are there, you can also purchase a copy of the book and that will also help us to keep going. You can also help by spreading the word and encouraging conversations about the podcast or the book. Share this episode or the book with friends and colleagues and use the social media links in the show notes to tag us. We'd love to see your thoughts. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review this show, that makes it easier for new listeners to find us. Thanks for listening. Keep reading and stay well.